Every year, on the ninth day of Av, which to our calendar would be around July or August, the Hebrew ear is fed the mournful strains of a book in the Hebrew scriptures called Eka. And they assemble in the synagogue to commemorate the temple's destruction. You might recognize that the Hebrew scriptures were named after the first word that was in each of those books. And Eka means how, and that's how the book of Lamentations opens, is that you have this cry of how. How could these things happen? In fact, the book of Lamentations, that you have three of the chapters, three of the poems opening with that very word how or alas. And the book then really does represent that as it has these questions that are offered up by the author. Like how could it be possible that God's city and that God's temple, the place where God had put his name and the place where God said that he would be with his people. How could that be destroyed? How could it be that God would turn his back on his people? And how could it be that a city and temple that were once full of people, worshipers of God, the very people of God, have now become completely desolate and empty. And that then is the essence of what this book is all about. In fact, I think it is interesting that the first temple was destroyed in the ninth day of Av in 586 BC, to which this book Lamentations commemorates. The second temple was destroyed also on the ninth day of Av in 70 AD. And so this book represents then even today, every year, read in the synagogues as a commemoration of that very day. The day when the temple fell and the doom and the cry and the lament and the weeping and the tragedy of losing God's temple and losing God's city. Now for us... I think it is interesting that I think the book of Lamentations is, has been generally ignored and is Christian scripture. I don't know how many Bible studies you've seen happen in the book of Lamentations. You know, it's kind of one of those things that uh, gets set off to the sidelines. And I think one of the reasons why is because it is written under the painful circumstances of the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple in 586 B.C., Archaeological evidence suggests to us that about 80% of the towns and villages of Judah were destroyed or abandoned during that final siege in 586, that third invasion when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. The destruction, the devastation was massive. In fact, you can read Jeremiah 52, that final chapter, in which it describes some of the horror of that 18-month siege that the Babylonians had waged against it. And at that time, then, those who survived this onslaught and survived the starvation and survived the slaughter were marched away on a 1,000-mile journey by foot into exile, leaving only a few poor survivors to be left behind in the land. The temple of God was defiled, it was looted, it was burned. 
And it is, I think for us, it is very hard to get a sense or a grasp of the significance of the loss of that temple. It is very hard for us to come into that scene and understand the gravity of that. I want to try to help get a partial sense of it because this doesn't even come close to the seriousness and gravity of what it meant. But for us, what we have nearest to us is on September 11, 2001, when we saw the World Trade Center buildings fall, that we had fear, there was pain, there was panic, there was grief. It was a time of great sorrow. And every year, there continues to be a memorial held for the darkest day, one of our darkest days in our nation's history. Now, all you can do is now imagine how much you need to amplify All of that because we're talking about concerning Judah. Not only is it the fall of the capital of Judah, not just a city. And not only was the freedom of the nation completely lost as the nation now is destroyed and carried into captivity. Not only is it also that the majority of the people were slaughtered or removed from the land. But the temple of God was destroyed. God was no longer there. And these people now seem to be forsaken by God, that God had left them. That's how much we have to amplify out of our history and to try to reach to understand how awful these days would have been when Jerusalem falls and the temple falls in 586 B.C. And so the religious and the spiritual impact is really immeasurable and that God had allowed this to happen, that God was the reason behind it. In fact, listen to Lamentations 2 and verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. And you just get a sense of the weightiness of what the author is looking at. As he now cries these words up to God and says, look at what has happened. Look at what has taken place. And anytime we come to books like these, I think it is very important to ask ourselves, why is this book here? Because I think we have to certainly question the idea that suggests, well, the whole reason for this book was just here's some author crying out about the destruction of Jerusalem. Why is that preserved for future generations of all the people who wailed concerning the fall of Jerusalem and who wailed over the temple's destruction and wailed over God leaving that place? 
Why is this one maintained as Scripture? Why is this one the Word of God that is now preserved for generation, for generation, generation? If it's just simply a memorial, if it's just simply one man's cry about some bad times, then why is this even here? There has to be much more to it than that. And I submit to you, the Jews definitely understood that and why they continued to read that year after year after year. And is still read even to this day as they would go through this this very book. It cannot be just to simply pay tribute to the past. And what I want to do for the majority of our lesson today is to just place relevance to the book of Lamentations today. And in our future lessons, we're going to go through and dig out the the great things that this book is going to do for us. But for us just to have a sense of why you want to read this book, why this book is going to be extremely valuable to you in your Christian walk with God. First of all, just to even recognize that this is not then a tribute to the past or just some kind of walk down memory lane of, oh, remember how bad things were. But think about the purpose of why this book would be necessary as it is going to address the issues and problems and grieving and pain of the future generations who are struggling to deal with this. Uh, The temple has fallen. Jerusalem is destroyed. God is not with his people. Ezekiel has seen visions in which God has left that temple area, has gone aside from them. And so this book then is set before them as a way to address the needs that they would have as they struggle with the loss of nation, loss of city, loss of temple, loss of all that they have ever known regarding their way of life, loss of all that they have and being able to say, well, God will protect us and God will deliver us when now it is all taken away and all that is left in Jerusalem and the temple is just A smoldering pile of rocks. This has to be left for them as one of the key things to that. But there's even more to it than that. It is much more than a eulogy. The book is is certainly well titled for us in the English in regards to calling it the book of Lamentations. And for us, that is extremely useful because not only do you have in this book, but you may have read in the Psalms from time to time the same kind of lament that will happen where the author will give up a, a cry or a wailing to God. And the idea of a lament then is that very concept is that you are crying out when life falls apart. And that's what you see those psalmists doing over and over again is that they are giving cries and prayers to God because their life is so thrown upside down. And on the basis of their life being completely wrecked by what is going on, they now take that information to God and say, now what are you going to do about that? And you see that over and over again in the Psalms. In fact, I know when we often study the Psalms, we shy away from those because we're like, can you really say that to God? I mean, they're very forceful words. And you are going to see some extremely forceful words in this very book where you take these kinds of cries of distress and grief and pain and you turn them to God and say, what is going on? I don't understand. Look at what is going on around me. Look at all that I am going through. Look at all this pain. And that by itself, I would hope, would at least be enough. I'm going to talk much, many more things of where this book helps us. But that even of itself 
should give us a reason to be intrigued by this book because I am sure that you can relate to times when you were in despair. Times when you had uh, great amounts of grief. Time when you were looking to God and saying, life looks like it's falling apart. And, and what am I going to do as life is falling apart? God, help me in this. What, is, what am I supposed to do? That's what this book is doing then, is it's touching into those feelings of grief and despair and turning those things to God. In fact, I think the... The placement of the book is fairly fascinating, not particularly in our scriptures, but in the Hebrew scriptures. Lamentations was not in the prophets. It did not sit where it sits in our scriptures today. It didn't sit among the prophets nor amongst the historical books. It sat with the writings. It sat with the books like Song of Songs, with Ecclesiastes, with Ruth and Esther. It sat amongst those scrolls. In fact, it wasn't until the Septuagint came along that the book was then moved away from that section and attached to Jeremiah because it's believed that likely Jeremiah, though author unspeakable, stated wrote this and Jeremiah is an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem but it seems to be fitting to attach it here but I think then that gives us a sense as if lamentations is just continuing on in Jeremiah some more prophetic news and that's not the idea at all this book is written with an entirely different purpose in trying to communicate how to deal with grief and how to deal with pain The structure of the book really, I think, enlightens us about that all the more. Lamentations is not something that you would read like a narrative. This is where I failed in all of my English lit classes because Lamentations is actually five individual poems. It's not a narrative. It's not a story. It's poetry. And I was always terrible at poetry and dealing with that. And so I'd like always have to go through that and try to figure all that out. And you have to come to a text like Lamentations like you come into the Psalms. That we're looking at poetry now. We're not reading prophetic writing. We're not reading history. We're not reading narrative. You have to get that poetic sense as you read these. In fact, what is particularly interesting is that each poem stands alone. Each poem stands all by itself, and yet they are all connected together. One main event, the fall of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, five individual poems, and yet though they stand individually, they flow together like a mountain. And I hope you'll kind of have this sense then of how you should think about the book of Lamentations is that as you start in chapter one, you're going to just get the sense of grief. And as you move to chapter two, that grief just intensifies, this crying out to God, expressing it to God. It just gets sharper and sharper and sharper. And you get to chapter three and you're at the pinnacle of the sharpness and the pain and the crying out, but there becomes now a transition where there's all kinds of hope and there's all kinds of expressions about the faithfulness of God, which then leads you down the other side of the mountain that chapter four kind of gets back to here's my pain, here's my suffering, here's what I'm going through after talking about the faithfulness of God. And then chapter five ends with a prayer. As the author now ends this cry of despair to God, praying to God concerning his condition and what is to be. And so as you read the Lamentations, 
Just have a sense of that poetry that as you move into chapter three, you're building up and building up and building up until you just finally get to the top of that. And then you're coming down the other side. It is almost like a relief as now the writer is expressing all that he has gotten off his chest, if you will, till he finally is now able to take the request of prayer to God. So it's really a beautiful book and just the structure of that. Another fascinating part of the structure that unfortunately is completely wrecked by English translation. (laughs) And that just happens because it wouldn't make any sense to us in Hebrew. But this book is an acrostic. And that's what makes this book particularly interesting is that you have in each of these chapters. And thankfully, it's one of the few times I can tell you the poem, the poem breaks and the chapter breaks align. So you're good. When you're at the end of chapter one, you're done with the first poem. When you're done with chapter two, you're done with the second poem. It's marked off perfectly and beautifully each poem that's there. Now, acrostic is just simply taking the first line of your alphabet and starting that line with the first letter. You might have done that when you were in school where you made your you did your poems and you start with the letter A for your first line and the second line starts with the letter B, third line starts with the letter C, and then you got to the letter X and we all had to write xylophones or X-rays or you know, how do you write the letter start a sentence with the letter X? Very, very tough. It shows something pretty beautiful, though, when you have a book that's arranged this way. And what you have is chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And you can kind of scan your Bible and notice this. All of them have 22 verses denoting that there, there are 22 lines of poetry. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So what you are doing in chapters 1, 2, and 4 is noticing, though our English wrecks it, The first line is starting with the first letter of Hebrew, and then the second verse is the second letter of Hebrew begins, and the third verse is the third letter of the Hebrew Hebrew language, and so on all the way through. So it's a really neat acrostic pattern. Now, there's a curveball to that. The curveball number one that's pretty cool is you'll notice that chapter 5 also has 22 lines, but it's not an acrostic. Which is very curious. You go 22, so it looks like an acrostic. You see 22 lines, like chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Chapter 5 is 22 lines, non acrostic at all, not even close. It's just simply his prayer. But he maintains the form of what he's done in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 5. The big clue that chapter 3 then is the pinnacle and where everything really comes to a head is that when you come to chapter 3, you'll notice that there are 66 lines. So chapter 1 is 22 lines. Chapter 2 is 22 lines. Chapter 4 is 22 lines. Chapter 5 is 22 lines. But chapter 3 has 66 lines. Three times as many. And what's even more impressive about that is then so for the first three lines, he starts with the first letter of the alphabet each time. So when you get to verse 4, 5, and 6, he's now starting with, in our language, the letter B in verse 4, the letter B in verse 5, the letter B in verse 6. And then for us, verse 7, 8, and 9, we'd all start with the letter C. So he does the acrostic in three lines instead of just one. That's how you get to 66, is that he's doing it like that. 
Now, I just want you to think about for that for a minute and again, come back to the question of why? (laughs) Why would you do that? And I think there's a lot to be said for why you would do this. This isn't just simply, let's just throw some poetry together. You see an awful lot of purpose and thought in that when you do an acrostic that way. To think about, you're going to have this book of lamentations, five poems that are held together under this funeral dirge of sorts is really what this is in crying out in pain and distress and each poem is going to reflect an acrostic and show something now why do that why go through all the pain of the acrostic why do the poetry why the five different lines why the the apex in in chapter three why do all of that I'll give you a bunch of reasons, and I think all of them are very valid in consideration. But I think one of the big things is, like when you see Psalm 119, Psalm 119, that whole thing is an acrostic as well. And when you read Psalm 119, it is all about basically the A to Z of trusting God. Here's the, the full story of all that needs to be said about who God is and trusting in Him. And this book sets up an acrostic in the exact same way. What you are doing in that kind of poetry is you're saying, I've got the start to finish, the A to Z about all that we need to talk about regarding grief, regarding pain and lamenting and despair. He's going to do that, which tells us then that you see even built into the poetry, what the author does is he is taking us on a journey. It is a journey through grief. And it's going to be fascinating to follow how he moves through that and the way that he does that in a godly way. Because what you see then in each of these poems is purpose. That it's not just simply, woe is me, my life stinks, I can't believe this happened, God you're awful and I'm walking away. That's not what happens here. You see an immense amount of purpose by doing an acrostic in each poem. And what you're doing is reflecting, I'm not just wallowing in grief and crying out, but there takes an awful lot of orderly thought in the middle of an awful lot of grief and pain to take all of that pain and all of that suffering and to compose that into an A to Z acrostic in poem one and an A to Z acrostic in poem two and an A to Z acrostic in triplicate in poem three. And an A to Z acrostic again in poem four to then end on poem five with not an acrostic, but a 22 line prayer. Very orderly, very thoughtful, even though he's going through the intense grief and pain and suffering of the spiritual devastation of city and temple of God being destroyed. And so you have that sense that's weighing over this. Now, I think this helps for us to be extremely useful in regards for us in dealing with grief and dealing with pain. And I think one of the reasons why it becomes extremely important for us to get to know this book is because in general, our culture, and I think even as Christians, One of the things that we have the tendency to do with grief is to either make light of it, gloss over it, or or try to shortcut it. You know, just like hurry up and get over it, you know. And, And you'll see that when somebody is going through something painful, and one of the worst times you often see that is, 
at a funeral where you'll get nearly every possible trite saying that has no comfort whatsoever uh, uttered. You know, weird things like, well, you know, uh, God needed another angel. You know, well, that's, you know, thank you for that. That got me over the hump. You know, I I need to put my grief aside. Thank you. Uh, Things like that. Or, you know, God had a reason and needed to take this person from us. I mean, really, that's not pushing us through grief any faster. That's not helping us at all. And yet that's exactly what we seem to try to do in our society is to try to just hurry through this just just get over it just put a smile on it get on with it and that's not what the book of lamentations does and sometimes we have the temptation to do the same thing and want to try to get to the other side of grief quickly and can even be miserable comforters use the words of job for other people and we'll make light of it and say well it could be worse You know, or they're in a better place. Or we'll say these kinds of things as if we're going to push them through to the realm of happiness by this great one-liner that we've come up with. And I think it is particularly fascinating to recognize that really this book pulls no punches. And what I love about this book is it doesn't offer easy answers. There's no inspiring techniques that we're going to come to this like we're going to approach this like a psychology class and say, all right, here's the technique you use to get over grief. That's not what the writer is going to do. And in particular, there's not some 10 step program that the book is going to give you. All right, just move through these 10 steps of grief and now you've come to the other side. You know, well done, star. That's not the point of what all of this is. What you see is with great intention, the book not hurrying through this. You think about five separate poems going from A to Z of grief. It's not just simply, man, this is terrible and I'm done. I mean, think about how many Psalms do that, where it could have just been a single chapter of man, the horror of all that I see done. That's not the intention. It really is to be instructive and purposeful to move these future generations to deal with great grief and great pain. How we are supposed to be able to endure that. And the structure of the book shows that it is not in any hurry to move us through grief. That you get to read that first poem and you kind of get to stop there and go, that was a sum total thought. And you catch your breath and then you go to the next one and go, okay. And here he moves further and moves further. And he he just doesn't rehash it or wallow in it, but steps forward in this pain and moves you further along in what's going on to then only go even further again and again. And so I just want you to get a sense of the purposefulness of what this book is accomplishing and why this book would be here. And that it's not just simply some guy crying out in his pain and suffering that God preserved this for this to be a model of usefulness for us when we go through difficulties of serious times. And so this is where I think ultimately the great value of this book will come in as we study it together. And I hope you'll spend time over the next month kind of reading it for yourself as as much as you can. Is that the, the book of Lamentation shows a person directing his despair toward God. And not away from God, as I think so often we feel like we're supposed to do, Uh, at least for me, maybe I'm all by myself on that. But I feel a great sense of fear and timidity 
to take despair and pain and grief and challenge God with it. My only one. Psalms does that a lot. Lamentations does it extensively. And what you are seeing is the author at bare minimum giving us this invitation to direct your pain and to direct your grief to God. I don't think that we should be surprised by that. For those of you who are parents, is the whole goal that you want is for your children, if they were ever to suffer through pain or despair or grief, to completely hide it from you and never tell you what's happening? Oh, if my children were going through that, I'd want to know exactly what's happening. I'd want that expressed to me. Nor is it the goal as a parent to say, well, you know, just put a happy face on and pretend, you know, get over it. You know, it's not, you know, there's compassion and care. Well, that's where God is with us. That this book is setting up for us that idea of take those things to God. Take that pain to God. Direct that grief to God. That's what this book does. And, and we'll read it tonight. And we're just going to just kind of read it through and amen done. And just get a feel of it. And listen to what he boldly says to God. It might shock you the way that he directs these words. But it is an invitation then for us to do the same. Lord, I'm in pain. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, my life is upside down. I am in grief. I am in sadness. I don't know what to do. God wants to hear that. How often the scriptures talk about, you know, you make every supplication and prayer to him. Except if you're suffering, except if you're in grief, right? Except except you have tears, then don't take that. And we almost have some kind of strange concept with that of, all right, just I'll tell God I'm I'm sad, but not to really go full force of here's what I'm going through. Don't you all love the the, uh, prophecy of Habakkuk? Because I mean, man, Habakkuk does that. Man, Habakkuk's just standing there going, this place is wicked. This place is awful. God, you got to do something about it. God goes, all right, that's exactly what I'll do. I'll bring the Babylonians up and I'll wipe you guys out and I'll take care of that. And then Habakkuk goes, wait a minute. They're way worse than us. That can't be right. I know we're bad, but they're really bad. And God basically then just gives them, you know what, the righteous live by faith. You have to trust me on this one. We're going to sort it all out. But you see in Habakkuk the ability to express it. You see in the psalmist the ability to express it and hear the author, if he be Jeremiah, as I suppose that he is, would do the very same thing to end these poems, take it directly to God. And one of the things I think that why this would be so necessary is that grief and despair does not naturally move us to God usually. It usually moves us away from God. It's usually that point of pain that causes people to walk away. And some of the discussions that I've had with people who don't believe in God, usually it's the problem of pain. That's usually the crux that I'm in conversation with. If there's a good and loving God, how can there be? This book's dealing with that. And trying to encourage people that know in your pain and in your grief, you take that to God. You don't have to walk away from God in pain. 
You don't sit there and go, well, he can't be here. He can't be working for me. And so often that seems to be our our general bend is, well, uh, I'm suffering. And so I'm going to deal with this myself. I'm in pain. So I'm going to deal with this myself. I'm in despair and grief. I've got to deal with this myself. God's going, no, you bring that to me too. You give that to me. You give that to me. And so the book that I believe is truly revealing for us how grief can draw us closer to God. One of the things that uh, you'll see in this book, we have a song in our songbook. Great is thy faithfulness. And it comes right out of this book. And yet we're going to read for the first two poems and a half, half of a third. It doesn't sound like he's going the direction of, hey, God is faithful. It sounds like he's saying, what are you doing? What have you done? How can this be? And this book of Lamentations is showing that journey. It's showing that movement of here's my pain. And yet I know that God is faithful. And I know that God is there. And I know that God can help. Which then moves him to his prayer at the end of this glorious, glorious poem that he writes. One other thing that I want to give you before we read it. But actually two things. Number one. As you read this, please have a sense of the pain of the author that his pain could not be different from yours. You know, sometimes we come into a text and we'll go, well, he's not going through what I'm going through. And I want you to have a sense of the extreme loss that was suffered at that time. When you imagine that 80% or more of the cities and towns and villages are destroyed and that people are slaughtered and the rest are carried off, whoever they be left, into captivity and taken away by the Babylonians. And here sits the author in the ashes of the fall of the city to recognize the extreme loss. Friends and family are dead. People that were your neighbors, people that were your friends, people that were your companions, people that your very direct family, they're dead or they've been taken away. And the city has been burned to the ground. Hope is gone. And the the biggest dramatic suffering of it all would be God's left. He's not here. Temple's gone. So as you read this, don't think, well, you know, he's just, you know, talking about a city. I mean, you have a sense of, I mean, we're talking about deep despair here of death and destruction that he is writing in the midst of. Which gives us the other final point that I think also gives us great contact with the book. Where Job is a little bit different. When Job goes through his suffering at the end of the day, God comes and talks directly to him. The book of Lamentations is the author going through all of these poems of grief and despair and moving through that. And God never speaks back in this. And the reason I think that's so valuable is because we go through grief and despair. We don't get the direct, okay, the sky's opened up. Here comes the whirlwind and God speaks like in Job and says, all right, where were you? Let me kind of give you a taste of your own medicine. We don't get that. And I want you to see, Lamentations doesn't give you that either. Lamentations, he's going to go through all this pain and suffering. There's never going to be an intervention by God. He says, all right, let me put you in your place. It's just going to be simply this beautiful movement of dealing with pain and suffering. What I'm going to do tonight, then, for the final minutes is, uh, rather than using the, the English Standard Version, which will be the text of our study as it always is, 
Uh, I'm going to read to you from the the New Living Translation. And the reason why I think that's valuable is uh, because it's poetry, but because English translation breaks the poetry, there's a great bit of usefulness to try to reconstruct the poetry as best as possible without the literal running, because the literal running is losing what was poetic, since it's not just narrative and not story or anything like that, but a poem. You want to try to guess, get a grasp of the, the flavor and the essence of what it is being said. And so as you study over the next few weeks, it's useful to, to grab a different, different few versions and get a sense of the pain. So if you want to follow along, you can, but uh, I think you might just get a sense, because poetry is often meant to be heard. That you just listen to what he says. And then we'll end with that, alright? So, first poem. Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who once was great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her and have become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down and she has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent. Her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper. For the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor. But now she has fallen to her enemy. There is no one to help her. Her enemies struck her down and laughed as she fell. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. And now she lies in the gutter with no one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns. She has seen foreigners violate her sacred temple, the place the Lord had forbidden them to enter. Her people groan as they search for bread. They have sold their treasures for food to stay alive. O Lord, look, she mourns, and see how I am despised. Does it mean nothing to you all who pass by? Look around and see if there is any suffering like mine, which the Lord has brought on me when he erupted in fierce anger. He has sent fire from heaven that burns in my bones. He has placed a trap in my path and turned me back. 
He has left me devastated, racked with sickness all day long. He wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to the yoke of captivity. My Lord sapped my strength and turned me over to my enemies, and I am helpless in their hands. The Lord has treated my mighty men with contempt. At his command, a great army has come to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled his beloved city like grapes are trampled in a wine press. For all these things I weep, tears flow down my cheeks. No one is here to comfort me. Any who might encourage me are far away. My children have no future, for the enemy has conquered us. Jerusalem reaches out for help, but no one comforts her. Regarding his people Israel, the Lord has said, Let their enemy, let their neighbors be their enemies. Let them be thrown away like filthy rags. The Lord is right, Jerusalem says, for I have rebelled against him. Listen, people everywhere, look upon my anguish and despair, for my sons and daughters have been taken captive to distant lands. I begged my allies for help, but they betrayed me. My priests and leaders starved to death in the city, even as they searched for food to save their lives. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken as my soul despairs, for I have rebelled against you. In the streets, the sword kills, and at home there is only death. Oh, others heard my groans, but no one turned to comfort me. When my enemies heard about my troubles, they were happy to see what you had done. Oh, bring the day you promised when they will suffer as I have suffered. Look upon all their evil deeds, Lord. Punish them as you punish me for all my sins. My groans are many and I am sick at heart. The Lord in his anger has cast a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities lie in the dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. In his day of great anger... The Lord has shown no mercy, even to his temple. Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them down to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers. All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath the fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. He bends his bow against his people as though he were their enemy. His strength is used against them to kill his finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy. He has destroyed her palaces and demolished her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrow and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. He has broken down her temple as though it were merely a garden shelter. The Lord has blotted out all memory of the holy festivals and Sabbath days. Kings and priests fall together before his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his own altar. He despises his own sanctuary. He has given Jerusalem's palaces to her enemies. They shout in the Lord's temple as though it were a day of celebration. The Lord was determined to destroy the walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He made careful plans of their destruction, then did what he had planned. Therefore, the ramparts and the walls have fallen down before him. Jerusalem's gates have sunk into the ground. He smashed their locks and bars. Her kings and princes have been exiled to distant lands. Her law has ceased to exist. Her prophets receive no more visions from the Lord. The leaders of beautiful Jerusalem sit on the ground in silence. They are clothed in burlap and throw dust on their heads. The young women of Jerusalem hang their heads in shame. I have cried. 
until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. They cry out to their mothers, we need food and drink. Their lives ebb away in the streets like the life of a warrior wounded in battle. They gasp for life as they collapse in their mother's arms. What can I say about you? Who has ever seen such sorrow, O daughter of Jerusalem? So what can I compare your anguish, O virgin daughter of Zion? How can I comfort you for your wound is as deep as the sea? Who can heal you? Your prophets have said so many foolish things, false to the core. They did not save you from exile by pointing out your sins. Instead, they, faint, they painted false pictures, filling you with false hope. And all who pass by jeer at you. They scoff and insult beautiful Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city called the most beautiful in all the world, the joy of all the earth? Your enemies mock you. They scoff and snarl and say, We have destroyed her at last. We have long waited for this day. It is finally here. But the Lord, it is the Lord who did just as he planned. He fulfilled the promises of disaster he made long ago. He has destroyed Jerusalem without mercy. He has caused her enemies to gloat over her and he has given them power over her. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourselves no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer, pleading for your children. For in every street they are faint with hunger. O Lord, think about this. Should you treat your own people this way? Should mothers eat their own children? Those who they bounced on their knees? Should priests and prophets be killed within the Lord's temple? See them lying in the streets, young and old, boys and girls, killed by the swords of the enemy. You have killed them in your anger, slaughtering them without mercy. You have invited terrors from all around as though you were calling them to a day of feasting. In the day of the Lord's anger, no one has escaped or survived. The enemy has killed all the children whom I carried and raised. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains, and though I cry and shout, He has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. He is hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me in pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart. My own people laugh at me. All day long they sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me the cup, bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away. And I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I hope for from the Lord is lost. 
The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie down in the face of the dust for there may be hope at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. He does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. If people crush underfoot all the prisoners of the land, if they deprive others of their of their rights in defiance of the Most High, if they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? Who can command these things to happen without the Lord's permission. Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? Then why should we mere humans complain when we are punished for our sins? Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven and say, we have rebelled, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven us. You have engulfed us with your anger, chased us down and slaughtered us without mercy. You have hidden yourself in the clouds so our prayers cannot reach you. You have discarded us as refuse and garbage among the nations. All our enemies have spoken against us. We are filled with fear for we are trapped, devastated and ruined. Tears stream from my eyes because of the destruction of my people. My tears flow endlessly. They will not stop until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. My heart is breaking over the fate of all the women of Jerusalem. My enemies whom I have never harmed hunted me down like a bird. They threw me into a pit. They dropped stones on me. The water rose over my head. I cried out, this is the end. But I called on your name, Lord, from deep within the pit. You heard me when I cried. Listen to my pleading. Hear my cry for help. Yes, you came when I called. You told me, do not fear. Lord, you have come to my defense. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong they have done to me. O oh, Lord, be my judge and prove me right. You have seen the vengeful plots my enemies have laid against me. Lord, you have heard the vile names they call me. You know all about the plans they have made. My enemies whisper and mutter as they plot against me all day long. Look at them when they sit and stand. I am the object of their mourning and mocking songs. Pay them back, Lord, for all the evil they have done. Give them hard and stubborn hearts and let your curse fall on them. Chase them down in your anger, destroying them beneath the Lord's heavens. How the gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scattered in the streets. See how the precious children of Jerusalem, worth their weight in fine gold, are now treated like pots of clay made by a common potter. Even the jackals feed their young, but not my people Israel. They ignore the children's cries like ostriches in the desert. Their parched tongues of the little ones stick to the roofs of their mouths and thirst. The children cry for bread. But no one has any to give them. The people who once ate the richest foods now beg in the streets for anything they can get. Those who once wore the finest clothes now search in the garbage dumps for food. 
The guilt of my people is greater than that of Sodom, where utter disaster struck in a moment and no hand offered help. Our princes once glowed with health, brighter than snow, whiter than milk. Their faces were as ruddy as rubies, their appearance like fine jewels. But now their faces are blacker than soot. No one recognizes them on the streets. Their skin sticks to their bones and is dry and hard as wood. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they waste away for lack of food in the fields. Tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. They have eaten them to survive the siege. But now the anger of the Lord is satisfied. His fierce anger has been poured out. He started a fire in Jerusalem that burned the city to its foundations. Not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would ever believe that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. Yet it happened. Because of the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests who defiled the city by shedding innocent blood. They wandered blindly through the streets so defiled by blood that no one dared touch them. Get away, the people shouted to them. You're defiled. Don't touch us. So they fled to distant lands and wandered among foreign nations, but no one would let them stay. The Lord himself has scattered them and he no longer helps them. People show no respect to the priests and no longer honor the leaders. We looked in vain for our allies to come and save us, but we were looking to nations that could not help us. We couldn't go into the streets without danger to our own lives. Our end was near. Our days are numbered. We were doomed. Our enemies were swifter than eagles in flight. If we fled to the mountains, they found us. If we hid in the wilderness, they were waiting for us there. Our king, the Lord's anointed, the very life of our nation was caught in their snares. We had thought that his shadow would protect us from any nation on earth. Are you rejoicing in the land of us, O people of Edom? But you too must drink the cup of the Lord's anger. You too will be stripped naked in your drunkenness. O beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. But Edom, your punishment is just beginning. Soon your many sins will be exposed. Lord, remember what has happened to us. And see how we have been disgraced. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We are orphaned and fatherless. Our mothers are widowed. We have to pay for water to drink. And even firewood is expensive. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are exhausted, but are given no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough food to survive. Our ancestors sinned, but they have died. And we are suffering the punishment they deserved. Slaves now have become our masters. There is no one left to rescue us. We hunt for food at the risk of our lives, for violence rules the countryside. The famine has blackened our skin as though baked in an oven. Our enemies raped the women of Jerusalem and the young girls in all the towns of Judah. Our princes are being hanged by their thumbs and our elders are treated with contempt. Young men are led away to work at millstones and boys stagger under the heavy load of wood. The elders no longer sit in the city gates. The young men no longer dance and sing. Joy has left our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The garlands have fallen from our heads. Weep for us because we have sinned. Our hearts are heavy. Our hearts are sick and weary. And our eyes grow dim with tears. For Jerusalem is empty. A desolate. A place haunted by jackals. But Lord, you remain the same forever. Your throne continues from generation to generation. Why do you continue to forget us? Why have you abandoned us for so long? Restore us, Lord, and bring us back to you again. Give us back the joys we once had. 
Or have you utterly rejected us? Are you still angry with us? That is an intense, intense cry to God. You can take your pain to God and you can take your grief to God and God will hear your prayer. You pull your psalm books out, we'll sing the invitation song and we invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to see a loving God who wants to hear your pain and your grief, who cares about your life, who cares about you. He cares about you so much that that's why he sent Jesus to die. That's how much he cares about your soul. That's how much he cares about what's happening in your life. That's why Jesus would come along and say, there's no need to have any anxiety, be anxious for nothing. And to even speak about birds are cared for, the flowers are cared for, how much more then will the Lord care for you? He loves you very much and he wants you to bring your life to him. Will you turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and come to a loving God who desires for you to be with him? Will you come now while we stand and while we sing?